You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Amazing. Well, morning, everyone. So good to be with you today. Thanks for that, Kaya. Uh, we are starting a brand new series today, actually, which is very exciting. We've been looking over the last little while uh, in the book of John. We've been looking at Jesus's I am statements that he makes about himself. Uh, and we're now going to be starting a new series still in John called Last Words. And really in that series, what we want to do is to look at the last week of Jesus' life as he is going towards the cross and to his resurrection and really ask the question, what, what does Jesus do in that time? How does he spend his time? Who does he hang out with? What does he, what does he say? What does he do? Because we're going to learn a bunch of stuff just by looking at that. And so this morning, we're kicking off this series in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. I want to talk to you uh, guys this morning just to open up um, a bit about smells, right? Smells are an interesting thing. They're a powerful thing. There's the classic trick, I'm sure you've heard of it, if you're an estate agent or you're trying to sell your home, a great thing you can do is get some freshly baked bread in there, get that smell in the house or some freshly brewed coffee and that can go a long way to helping people uh, want to buy your house and be like, you know, I could, I could see myself living here. You know, there's some smells that, that are powerful. They just stay with you, right? I was thinking about this. I don't know if you, if you remember this, if you relate to this, but do you remember the yellow banana flavored medicine when you were a kid? The smell of that, like I can just, I can imagine it right now. And it was delicious, man. That stuff was great. Um, and a couple of years ago, my son wasn't well and he got that same banana flavored medicine and I was tempted. I was like, this bottle would be gone uh, in an instant, which probably isn't a good move. So I, I didn't, I didn't do that. But the smell of that brought me there or the smell of a, the combination of a chicken tikka slice and a can of monster energy drink. That brings me right back to uni days. I'm doing an all nighter in the McRoberts building. I've got an SAGU the next day. It's it's not a very pleasant memory, but those smells will bring me right back there. A more pleasant smell, a nicer smell is Joe Malone's English pear and freesia. And that perfume that reminds me of the heady days when I just started going out with the wonderful Hazel Hall, then Hazel Ryan. I'd walk into the church office where we both worked and I'd know, I'd smell, I'd smell her before I saw her in a good way. Like I could smell that perfume in the building. I was like, ah, Hazel's here. And whenever I smell that, even now I'm transported back to that time. You know, a smell, a fragrance has the ability to stir something in us, whether that's a memory or an emotion, it causes a reaction. And we're going to read about a moment like that in John 12, 1 to 11. So turn to that in your Bibles or on your phones. We'll go from chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Amen. So we're looking at this beautiful moment this morning, this, this moment where Mary pours out this expensive, extravagant gift onto the feet of Jesus, and this aroma fills the whole house. Now, I knew when Hazel had been in a room because the smell of her perfume was still there. I, I am not the target audience for Joe Malone, right? It's, for me, I'm, I'm more like this. I'm a, a stealth, active, 48-hour uh, for men from Aldi. I know quality when I see it. This is more my speed. And the scents that Hazel and I wear are distinct. They're going to be different. She smells this. She might know, ah, Dave's been in this room. To be frank, there's probably some other smells that she could use to identify my presence, but we'll, we'll leave that there. The world around us, though, might have an aroma that seems appealing, but we're called as people of God to be distinct, to carry a distinct fragrance with us. And so we want to ask today, how are we as God's people called to smell distinctly from the world around us? We're going to look at three areas where we're called to do that. If we want others to smell the fragrance of Jesus, what do we need to do? First, we're called to be a worshiping people. You know, we have an amazing online pastor here, Libby, uh, who is just fantastic. And I remember her telling this story um, a wee while ago. When she was a kid, she used to go and visit her grandparents. And they do the classic grandparent thing of letting her have loads of chocolate and biscuits and spoiling her. And one of the things her grand let her do was play with her jewelry. And so Libby had this big chunky necklace on, these huge clip-on earrings. And she'd run around the house pretending to be like a princess and giving out royal commands and having fun and all that kind of stuff. A few years ago, her grand said to her mom, hey, I'm having a clear out. I'm just getting rid of some junk. There's that old jewelry that, that Libby used to play with. You know, it's just costume jewelry. It's not really worth anything, but if it's got sentimental value, she can have it. Otherwise, it's just going in the bin. So Libby's mom takes it home. And, but as she's looking at it more and more, she thought something's not quite right here. Something's unusual about this. And so she took it to an antique dealer to have it checked out straight away they were like, there's something going on here. This necklace is actually set with solid gold and it's filled with precious and semi-precious stones and it is worth a significant amount of money. And they couldn't believe it. You know, this, this was the stuff that Libby just run around with as a kid, probably like, you know, 
not particularly carefully, and it's actually worth a fortune. What they thought was just costume jewelry was actually the real deal. This antique dealer could spot it a mile off. I mean, that, I don't know if you're like me, but already I'm, I'm trying to think like, have I got in my attic, is there like an old painting or something? Or, you know, maybe I could go and visit a car boot sale and just pick up a random vase and it's worth like millions of pounds, antique roadshow style. You bring it on there and then like the dealer sees it and they're like, whoa, and their monocle pops off because it's worth so much money. Like that's what we want, right? That's the dream. You know, these antique dealers, they know which items are worth something. Because when you're familiar with precious things, you recognize their true value. And what Mary shows us here in how she acts is that she can see Jesus' real value. She can see how worthy he is. You know, I never noticed it until preparing for this talk, but actually there's three times where Mary is mentioned in the Gospels. And in each of the three occasions when she's mentioned, she is found in the same place. John 11:32, when Lazarus, her brother, had died before he was raised again, this happens. Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In chapter 12, we've just read, Mary took a pint of pure nard, expensive perfume, and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Luke 10, 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Did you see that there? Where do we always, always find Mary? At the feet of Jesus. She has spent time hanging on every word. She's become so familiar with him, so at home in his presence that she can't help but see his worth. And this perfume that she used, this, this is an extravagant gift. This is a big thing. So th this, this display of worship, this, this thing that she pours out, it would have cost in today's terms like 20 grand, 30 grand, something like that. And that is just like gone in an instant. That, like, she's poured it out and it's, you can't scoop that back up and, and sell it again. That is used up. The perfume is called pure nard. It actually was taken from a plant that grew in the Himalayas in India and it was, it was um, imported back. What they would do is they would take the liquid from the shoots of this plant um, but what people would often do is they would take the liquid from the shoots and then they would also mix it in with the roots as well. And so this wasn't pure nard. This was kind of like a mixture and it was, you know, it would sell for maybe 10 grand. So still like extravagant for a perfume, right? But they'd like put the roots in to bulk it out. That isn't what Mary buys. She doesn't go for the, the rooty uh, nard, if you like. But what she does is she goes for the finest available. She brings the absolute best for Jesus at this moment, all 30,000 pounds worth, because he is worthy of it and much more. Other than the cost of the perfume, Mary in this account, what is she doing? We've already said it, she's at Jesus' feet. She's anointing his feet. And culturally, like, I, I don't know about you, I'm not a huge fan of feet, I don't love feet. But back then, like when you've got dusty roads everywhere, you've got open-toed sandals and people are walking around, like people's feet were, were minging, like they were pretty disgusting. They would have been leathery and smelly and dirty and horrible. And so when someone kind of comes into a house, it was traditional that you would, they would wash their feet. Like, not even the servants, a bunch of the servants wouldn't touch the feet of their masters because that was seen as like really, really humiliating and degrading. It was for the lowest of the low to do. And yet this is exactly where we find Mary. 
anointing Jesus' feet. It's like with her posture, with her whole being, she's bringing herself low to bring him glory, to magnify him and lift him up in worship. And she does something else that would have been shocking as well. Not only is she at his feet, but she unfurls her hair and uses it to wipe the perfume on his feet. And if this seems like a weird thing to do to us, that is nothing compared to how it would have been perceived in the time. Because in that culture, women did not show their hair, like ever. It's, it's, it's almost the, the equivalent of, of being naked. Um, the, to unveil a woman's hair in public was considered this humiliating thing. It was, it was considered a punishment if she'd been suspected of being promiscuous or something. So the culture was that a woman's hair was only to be seen by her husband in private. It's not a public thing. And here, Mary, in a staggering display of adoration and vulnerability, she lets her hair down in front of a room full of people and she uses it to wipe the perfume on Jesus' feet. Her hair is called in the Bible a woman's glory that crowns her head. You know, this, this part of her that is supposed to be kept separate and, and sacred almost, she brings it out and it touches the feet of Jesus. It's like she's offering the best she can. This is the most beautiful and clean thing that I have, Jesus. And I'm willing to make it into, into a rag for your feet, if that brings you even an ounce of, of glory, if that magnifies you in any way, I'm willing to do that. I will bring my best to lift you up and to worship you because you are worthy. The worth she attributes to Jesus is staggering, but that's because she's seen him. She knows him. His worthiness is, is, is beyond measure. It's, it's absolutely worth it. It's beyond counting. She generously pours out her worship to him, her love, her adoration, because he's worthy of it all. About this moment, William Barclay, who's a Scottish 20th century theologian, said this, love is not love if it nicely calculates the cost. There's an extravagance, an overflow, expressing a deep inward reality. And I read this and I'm like, man, do I worship Jesus like that? I can see Mary's humility, her extravagant devotion, the cost she's willing to pay. And I'm like, Lord, am I anywhere near that level? So often I, I struggle just to sit for a few minutes without getting distracted or bored. And then I'm on to the next thing. And yet Mary is here fully giving everything to Jesus. That kind of devotion, it carries a fragrance. Maybe you've met someone like that in your life, someone who walks so closely with Jesus, whose, whose love and devotion for him is so apparent and so outward that, that it's almost like a smell that you get off them, this lovely, beautiful, inviting fragrance. It's like, oh, I want that. I want that for myself. There's a closeness there. And reading this isn't about making us feel bad about where we've missed the mark or maybe our devotion has, has been half-hearted at times or maybe it's been non-existent at times. Remember, what is it that a smell does? It stirs our emotions and it reminds us. You know, it talks in the Bible about us returning to our first love of Jesus. 
Maybe you have walked with him with a passion and an intensity and an intentionality at one point in your life. And when you smell that almost on someone else, it takes you back to that moment and you go, I want that. I want to recapture that first love that I had for you, Jesus. When you meant everything to me and I would do anything for you because you are worthy. Mary's worship here isn't to highlight just, you know, where we failed or where we haven't done what she's done, where we've lived selfishly or to make us feel like we could never measure up to an act like this. It's supposed to stir something within us. It's supposed to bring us on to be like, oh, Jesus, I want to do something like that for you. I want to I show how worthy you are. I want to give everything I can, Jesus, because you are worth it. The cost is great, but you are greater. Matthew 13 puts it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He sold all he had. It wasn't out of obligation because he should do it. It wasn't out of guilt or out of fear or, yeah, I suppose I should grudgingly. He did it. What does it say? In his joy, he sold everything. Because what he was getting in return was so much better. The invitation is for us to see Jesus for who he is. To sit at his feet and say, Jesus, wow. Wow, you are worthy of my worship. And for our lives to be acts of worship to him for what we do to overflow out of that place of love and adoration for him. So we're called to be a people who worship Jesus in the way that Mary does. Second fragrance, you get a little hit there. We're called to be a relational people. Now, I am by no means good at DIY, but I'll, I'll give it a go. I remember we had a, our, our toilet started to, whenever you flushed it, it would just start to like leak like a little bit at the bottom of the base. And I was like, I'll sort this out. Basically, every time I thought I'd fixed it, I would flush the toilet again and I would flood the bathroom. I did it six times in a row. It was a horrible day. I was just like tearing my hair out at the end of it. So DIY doesn't always go great for me. It's not my gifting, but recently we had to replace some legs on our old sofa and uh, I ordered what I thought I needed. Turned out I hadn't quite ordered the wrong thing and I was like, it's fine. I'm going to go to b and I'm going to cobble something together. This is not a disaster. And I get some stuff. I attach the legs to the sofa and it looks great. Hooray for me, right? It's all brilliant. But after a couple of days, Hazel says, is it just me or is this sofa a little bit wobbly? And I'm like, Tough. I did a great job. And then it's like you sit down on you like, yeah, she's definitely right. There's something not right here. Turns out I hadn't factored in that the legs need to be actually screwed into the base of the couch. Now, I know that makes me sound really dumb. and That sounds really obvious. But I'd attached the legs to these like metal plates, these brackets, and then they were attached to the couch. So I thought, oh, it's fine. Like they're solid. They're attached to these plates. But because the leg wasn't connected to the structure, the base of the couch, it didn't have that kind of strength. Embarrassingly, I'd forgotten the one key thing that I needed to make the whole thing work. And we all know what it is. So, you know, let's say it together. One, two, three. The carbon steel hex socket drive insert nuts. Of course, we all, it's obvious, it's patronizing of me to, to even say those words. But that's what I needed. That's what I should have bought. These, apparently, 
are a key piece of the puzzle because when these are screwed into the frame of the sofa at the base, that gives your legs something to screw into. That gives them a point of contact. And without these, there's no real strength in the thing. The legs might look okay. They might kind of give them a little, a little shake. You're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But as soon as there's weight and impact going onto that sofa, they're going to get more and more unsteady with time. They're not designed to take that weight on their own. Having the right support in place is absolutely essential. And this is how we've been made to live our lives. You know, we need support around us. We need to be in relationship with others if we're going to be able to endure. And we see Jesus modeling this in these verses. You know, one of the mysteries and one of the beautiful things about Jesus is, is the fact that he is fully God and fully human at the same time. You know, he is God. He is all powerful. He can do all things. He's, he's miraculous. All this stuff. And yet, he's a human being with emotions and with needs and with wants and with struggles, just like the rest of us. And so we see his humanity here. For Jesus' final week, before he's going to the cross to endure the most brutal death, what does he choose to do? He chooses to be with his friends, to be around those who know him and love him and who will encourage him. And it's, it's interesting because in John's account that we're reading, it, it hones in on Mary pouring the perfume on Jesus' feet. And then in Mark's account of the same incident, the emphasis is much more on Mary anointing Jesus' head. That doesn't mean that they made a mistake, but actually what it means is it's both and. Both of those things happened. She anointed not only his feet, but his head as well. And if you're anointing the head, and if, you're, if you have this perfume dripping down, it is just going to absolutely cover all of Jesus, right? He's going to be drenched in the stuff. It's a whole pint. Imagine someone pouring a pint of perfume on you. Like, you're going to know about it. So not only does it fill the fragrance of it, fill the whole house in that moment, but on his journey towards the cross, that perfume, that smell signifying the love and devotion of his friends, he would have been able to smell it the whole time. That would have clung to him. In those dark moments, the sweet smell of friendship would have been with him. Jesus recognized the life and the joy that close friendships brought. He needed that in his life. Jesus needed that. He wanted friends to share the mountaintop moments of life with him, but also to be there with him when things were hard. And if he is modeling for us that he needed it, then boy, we definitely need it. I was talking to a friend this week, we were hanging out, and he said something really interesting. He said, I really struggle to ask people if they want to hang out, and I feel anxious about it sometimes. You know, what if they say no? And I totally related to what he was saying. I've definitely been there, and yeah, that's definitely something I relate to. Maybe not everyone will, but it can feel really vulnerable sometimes to put yourself out there and try and make connections with people that maybe you haven't got to know yet. It's like, what, what if they say no? What if I get rejected? And sometimes it can feel safer and easier to kind of pull the drawbridge up and just not bother doing that. But I think in those moments, we're a bit like the sofa leg. It's like attached to the metal outer plate that is attached to the couch 
And it's almost like we can be attaching ourselves to other things that feel like they give us stability, like, you know, um, finances are in a good place maybe, or I am doing well at school or at work, or I'm achieving things, or there's a hobby that I'm kind of plowing my time into. And these are good things, but if we don't have that core of connection, of relationships with others, then we're on shaky ground. You know, this... We're, we're in, I think it might even be Connect, no, last week I think it was Connect Group Sunday at church. And uh, Connect Groups are kicking off over the next wee while around our sites and online as well. And if you're not a part of a Connect Group and if you haven't done that before, or even if you have, I would so encourage you to sign up and to connect with some people and just to, just to be in each other's lives. In this last year, I've been so fortunate to develop some friendships with people who can look me in the eye, go beyond the small talk and the pleasantries and just say, how's your soul? How have you been chasing joy this week? How have you been igniting passion in your life this week? What have you been struggling with? What's the stuff you found really hard? What are the things that you want to hide and you don't want to tell me? You know, having those real relationships and friendships, it's almost like for me, it felt like putting like an iron rod in my back. Just give me that strength of like, yes, like there are people in my life that know me and love me just as I am. And I've had times as well of just having fun and just deepening relationships and both are important. You know, our God is a God of relationship. What does he say to Adam? It is not good for you to be on your own. And that's what he says today. We live in a Western society where loneliness is at an epidemic level as technology and social media and all these things increase and get more important. And we, as we become more connected, we find often that we are more alone than we ever have been as a society. This world is crying out for friendship. It's crying out for community. It is a lonely world that we find ourselves in. And this is an incredible way for us to bring the fragrance of Jesus into people's lives. To be someone who lowers the drawbridge in our lives and says, do you know what? I need other people. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be vulnerable. And so that's the journey that, that I'm on at the minute. And I just invite you to go on that journey as well. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Let's be a people who make authentic relationships with others at the core of our lives. Let's let down the drawbridge. So we're called to be a worshiping people. We're called to be a relational people. And our final fragrance, here we go. We're called to be a re oh smells good guys get yourselves down to Aldi we're called to be a resurrected people that's the last thing you know I remember when I was five years old and I was sat on the family computer um who knows what I was doing at five I think I was <laughs> I think I was like printing out like pictures so I could like color them in or something but like to me it was important work so I'm, I'm on the computer tapping away on the keyboard with one hand I'm sat on my dad's chair right it is a brown fabric chair and in one hand I'm tapping on the keyboard and the other hand I've got a black pen and I'm just waving this pen around I'm not thinking about too much about what I'm doing and what happens after a while is I realize I've covered 
the seat that I'm sitting on in black pen. Like the ink's all over the place and I'm panicking. Like dad is not gonna like this. This is his chair, this is where he sits. I probably shouldn't be in this office. Uh, what, what am I gonna do? And so I think about it, think, 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 what can I do? And the, the answer comes to me instantly. How do you get rid of pen? Tipex, of course, Tipex is the answer. And so I get a bottle of Tipex and I liberally just pour it all over the chair, covering that pen up nice and good. You can't see any pen and I'm really pleased with myself and pretty quickly I realize what I've done. I have, admittedly, like you can't see the pen anymore, but I have in effect destroyed my dad's chair and there's no coming back from it. It is gonna be covered in Tipex forever. Sometimes trying to get rid of the evidence backfires. And in the passage we've read, the religious leaders in this verse are trying to do the same thing here. Verse 10, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus on account of so many Jews uh, going over to Jesus and believing in him. So they're planning to kill Lazarus. Why? Because Jesus has raised him from the dead. It's like, well, if we can kill him again, then we'll get rid of the evidence of what Jesus has done. And so that's their plan. But we see further on in verse 17, the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So the plan is to kill Lazarus, but despite their best efforts, it's painfully obvious to everyone, Lazarus isn't dead. Like everyone knows it. It's not something you can keep quiet. He is very much alive. And there's something so comical about it to me. Like, honestly, I just think, thinking about it, just imagine it's in, in the verses we've read, it's like Lazarus, Lazarus is reclining at the table. Like he's just, you know, look everyone else, just doing what other normal people do. And I can imagine him just going about his life, you know, getting up, whistling on his way to work and, you know, maybe doing like a little bit of shopping and just carrying on. And the religious leaders seeing him and just being like, stop, stop that, Lazarus, Lazarus. Take those sunglasses off. Stop it. Stop enjoying yourself. Put those gray clothes on. You know what I mean? It's like they just see this and they're like, Ugh, just the very fact that he is there is an offense because it is evidence of what God has done. They're completely powerless here because the truth is so plain. He was dead and now he's alive. And the thing I love about Lazarus' story is it's got nothing to do with him, right? Like he didn't make a plan to be in the tomb for four days and then come back to life. He didn't resurrect himself. This all happened to him. He dies and then he wakes up, wanders out of his tomb, and then as a result, he's like a regional celebrity and everyone loves Lazarus. It's like, oh, cool. People are flocking to Jesus on account of him. And the power in Lazarus's testimony is not about what he has done, but it is what has been done for him. We are a resurrected people. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we surrender to him and say he is Lord of everything, because of his death and resurrection, we're brought from death into life. Second Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And just like with Lazarus, the remarkable thing is not what we have done, but what has been done for us. We've been given new life. We've been made alive in him. And the distinct fragrance of Jesus here is not because we're so fantastic. 
and because we've done anything amazing, it's Jesus' work in our lives that other people are recognizing. And so what does that mean? It means that we don't need to live in fear of the grave. It doesn't hold power over us anymore because we know our eternal destiny is secure. And in so many ways, the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives is to take the dead things in us and to bring them to life, to renew them. The parts where we struggle to make them new, to breathe life into us. It doesn't mean that we're the finished article, far from it. But it means more and more with time, our expectation should be that as we partner with Jesus, as we invite him in to bring change to us, the fragrance of our lives will be that of a resurrected person, one who's full of hope. Jesus talks about what Mary did for him in verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And perfume was an important part of the burial process. They would use it to try and cover up the smell of a decaying body. But I think it's a little bit different with the fragrance of Jesus. It's a bit like Febreze. You know in the adverts where it says like, oh, Febreze, it doesn't cover up bad odors. It eliminates them. And it's the same with Jesus. The aroma of Jesus overpowers the stench of death. It's like it wrestles it to the ground. There might be other worldviews, other religions, other ways of living your life that might try and mask the stench of death, the hopelessness that the world faces without Jesus. He is the only hope. It is only the gospel of Jesus, the reality of his death and new resurrection life is that fragrant offering, that fragrance of the gospel that covers the power and the smell of sin and death. It wrestles it to the ground and it eliminates it. Oh, death, where is your sting? This is one of the ways as followers of Jesus that we need to be distinct in the way that we smell. We need to have confidence. We don't need to live in fear of death. Not because of what we've done, because of how good we are, but because of what he's done in us. The grave clothes have been taken off us and he is continuing to make us new and to make the dead things in us alive. We're no longer, as resurrected people, we are no longer dead in our sin. Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we never put a foot wrong. We will sin, we will mess up, but the trajectory of our life is ongoing renewal and resurrection by Jesus. We're being transformed from glory to glory. And so I just wanna leave us with this. Am I? living in that reality? Would someone know that smell, know that fragrance of Jesus by being around me? If we want to give off that fragrance, if we want people to know who it is that we belong to, we want to be a people that worship. We want to be people that adore Jesus in ways that are extravagant and go beyond the norm. We want to be people who are deeply relational, who are outward looking, who are willing to lower the drawbridge in our lives and to bring others in, not just as a token gesture, but to, to need them, to need each other and to have real deep, authentic relationships with a lonely world. And finally, we need to live as a resurrected people, solid, firm on the truth of what Jesus has done and what he has won for us. Amen.